0: is film like milk yes it's got culture in it and it's mm. damn it <laughs> whole milk skim milk medium milk
1: i have nipples greg could, you milk, could me? you milk me hi and welcome back to age like milk the podcast where we decide if a film has gone bad in the mind fridge of your mind i am one of your hosts paris herbert taylor and with me uh you know in the barbershop is my good friend david william rogers hello what's happening paris how you doing it's funny to me because you, of all people, just desperately need to see the baba, like constantly. Your hair is just growing.
0: I was actually thinking about going to get a straight razor cut, which I could do at the barbershop. You know what okay. I mean? Get the lather, you know, put the hot towel on my head, on my neck, shave it me up, It does seem very soothing. Right. Like, yeah.
1: Is yeah. this something that you have done before? I've never do done do that
0: before. Oh, okay. Yeah, but yeah. I'm thinking about it now after watching this film.
1: Yes, well, the cat's out of the bag. Uh, So the film we're doing today is Barbershop. David, what can you tell us about this film right off the top?
0: Barbershop 2002 is directed by Tim Story. Writers are Mark Brown, Don D. Scott and Marshall Todd. Um, this stars ice cube, Cedric, the entertainer, Eve, Anthony Anderson, Sean, Patrick, Thomas, Michael early, Leonard Earl house. It's got a ton of people. Keith, David, um, Lamar, uh, Tate, who's been in a ton of stuff, Tom, Wright. Mm -hmm. So I love like this ensemble cast D Ray Davis is hilarious, even though he's just got a (laughs) few little cameos, but he had (laughs) me geeking out. Um, And yeah, it's just a, it's, it's a really good movie as far as like community goes, I would say. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Had you seen this movie before?
0: Yeah. I've seen it a few times. Okay. and It was my first
1: time seeing it. It was always one of those movies. I started a list this year with my partner that we're going to go through and watch movies that we've kind of had slipped through the cracks. And actually this was one of them that I was like, I feel like I always see the, the poster for it. And I'm like, however, and there's like, Three or four of them, or something. So yeah. I think they've made a few sequels.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, before we get too much into it, let's do the synopsis. David, I think it's your turn. It Take is. it away for All us right.
0: now. So we got my guy, Calvin Palmer, and his wife. They're expecting a baby. He's uh, trying to work on some studio equipment in his garage because he wants to venture out into other things. He is the barbershop owner and it was passed along to him from his father. So he's kind of in some financial troubles trouble. They're not making too much money at the barbershop. And he's looking to get money from this loan shark, which is Keith David, Lester Wallace's character. He actually sells the barbershop to Lester uh, for $20,000. And he starts to regret it as he's seeing all the people that come through the shop, all the life and love and joy that the connection brings between all those people that stop there. It's a big staple in the community. And he goes back to Lester. Lester's like, no, I need the 20 grand I borrowed you plus another 20. And while this is going on, Anthony Anderson had stolen a ATM machine, him and his buddy, and he used one of the employees' trucks um, at the barbershop. So you got this other line, this other story, like where people are getting chased by the cops. And it's pretty funny with Anthony, Anthony Anderson's character. But in the end, um they go to Lester Wallace's shop. The cops are looking for the ATM machine. Anthony Anderson's there. So is uh Ice Cube. And they ended up getting the right guy and he gets his shot back, makes a deal with Lester, and he gets his shot back. And he gets a reward 50K for turning in the um, the ATM machine so ends well and uh, like I said this movie's about community it's got a ton of good characters and they just kind of build off each other and it's a, it's a fun
1: watch that's a great introduction David so we're actually not alone discussing this film today we have a good friend of mine Amadou Diallo hello and welcome
2: hey Paris hey David what great up? to be here
1: Joining us from not-so-sunny California today, but previously a resident of New York, I feel very lucky to have you in town. Amadou and I, you know, before we started recording, we were just talking to David about how we know each other. We know each other through a good friend of the podcast, Saeed Crumpler, who is crushing it in this business. And Saeed, you know, at one point during the pandemic was like, every month I'm going to do a script script group where he got together like a bunch of his writer friends and we watch a pilot and then we read the script and then we get together on zoom and we discuss it and it's really fun it's amazing to have a community of people um everyone in our group is is just growing and it's great to see the support but amadou you're a tv and screenwriter, a tv screenwriter tv and screenwriter are those two different jobs yes no film and tv (laughs) Film and TV, screenwriter. (laughs) Um, You're a renaissance man with a career that has spanned multiple art forms. You've toured and recorded as a jazz musician, hence the instruments I can see behind you. You've had solo photography exhibits, um, and your pieces have appeared in places like the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and PBS NewsHour. But you broke into the industry, which we're always so curious how people got their starts, um, as a staff writer on the AMC drama Parish. And then now you're on Billions, which is exciting. You're a story editor. And you currently staffed on a show at Hulu, which is about uh, Sammy Davis Jr. So it's kind of like a marriage of your music, your writing. Um, And you were also a member of the Mentorship Matters Fellowship, um, which we should talk about a little bit, too, because we always love to talk about the fellowship. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us.
2: Yeah, sure. No, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. Um, And any excuse to watch Barbershop.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, so this was your choice. So obviously you had seen it before.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah.
1: It's, <laughs> so, it's,
2: no, it's funny because I'd seen it years ago and then I have two kids and a lot of times, you know, I was like, hey, you guys got to see this movie. You know, when I think they're old enough or something, something that I thought was really funny. And nine times out of 10, it's age horribly. It's totally inappropriate. It's like misogynistic, homophobic, whatever. And it's, you know, I'm like... I'm like two for 37.
1: Ah. (laughs) Yeah, it is awkward. I mean, that's the sort of whole genesis of this podcast is like, there are so many movies from when I was in middle school, like my favorite rom-coms and stuff that you watch as an adult. And you're like, oh, this is a terrible message for kids, you know? So it is funny to to reimagine them. But what was it that made you want to do this specific movie for the podcast? Why did you want to jump back into it? Well, I think so
2: years ago, this was one of the film's that uh, I wanted to introduce my kids to, and this was one of my two of thirty-seven. Mm. So when I talked to you, I was like, "Oh yeah, it's been a minute. I need to, I need to see this again and make sure, you know, that now, now as a as a fully formed adult, it still holds up. You know, <laughs> yeah. kid friendly, but do I still like it? So
1: yeah, for sure. And David, when was the first time that you
2: watched this film? Probably around
1: when
0: it came out.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was
0: like in high school. Um, yeah, this movie is. I was geeking out watching it this morning again, and it's just, I don't know, it gets me.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, as someone who could not be further from, you know, Chicago and the black community as a white Australian who was raised in Hong Kong, I found the movie very interesting (laughs) because I think it taps into like the cultural significance of a barbershop. And that was the first thing I wanted to ask you guys about. Like, you know, this film is not very complicated. We kind of covered it in the synopsis. It's, you've really got two storylines running parallel, but the thing that really holds it together is right there in the name. It's the barbershop. It's the community. So I don't know. Do these types of barbershops still exist everywhere? I feel like they're becoming fewer and fewer. Yeah, they do. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Any, any black neighborhood Mm -hmm. there's barbershops like in, Fort Greene in Brooklyn, you know, where I am before I jumped out here for this gig, um, there's like, you know, five or six of them. So it's always a thing of like choosing your shop, like which uh. one are you going to go to. And in New York, it's interesting because there's a lot of uh, barbershops owned by you've got like the, the Latino barbershops. Then you've got like a lot of like the Jamaican Caribbean barbershops. I think what I've seen disappear is the more like black American owned ones. I feel mm. like a fewer were um but there's still barbershops serving that community and that's always been like a it's a very guy-centered thing but that's always been like a focal point of the community you know that's kind of where you kind of find your people a little bit
0: Paris there's one on the corner on La Brea
1: no I've seen that one but that's why I was like that's kind of the only one I've seen again like West Hollywood where we live is Mm. not typically considered a black neighborhood and I'm sure if I was going to you know like New York like you said I maybe notice it more but I also think it's You know, you notice what you notice. I don't go to salons for community. I mean, I think we've all become a little bit more siloed after the pandemic, you know, because we were always wearing masks and there wasn't so much the community of just hanging out. Like the first thing that really struck me about this film was the old guy that they call Checkers. Like, hey, Checkers. And it's just this like old guy who literally doesn't get his hair cut, I don't think, the entire film. And he's just sitting there all day, every day playing playing Checkers, right?
0: Mm-hmm. It's just like the scene in Coming to America. where I was all, say that. Old yeah. guys are just chilling. Um, yeah, and it's funny because there's a... All barbershops are probably a little bit different, but there's still like the same kind of dynamic where like I used to go when I had hair, uh, my cousin and I and like someone, you know, be in a rush and offer you money to jump you in line, like things Mm. like that. Be like, hey, man, I'll give you I'll give you 10 bucks if you let me get cut first, you know, and a haircut could take half an hour, 45 minutes. So and it's uh, it's it's an interesting dynamic.
1: Yeah, I mean, it just seems like, again, let the white person speak on this, obviously. Um, But it's just (laughs) interesting. Like, I know there's been a lot of discussion about the joy of black hair. And I know there's like a book, excuse me, my throat that came out. I know that there's been like a lot of history and a lot of like... You know, different things about people of color's hair and how important it is. And obviously it's like so different texturally than like my dead straight stupid hair. So I noticed that. Yeah, I mean it was just a lot of like cultural and like specific to that community that was wrapped up in this film, but also the community of it all just like sang to me, you know, that the familiar faces and like you said, the guy that like sneaks in and like doesn't pay for his haircut that like everybody knows or the guy that comes in and is trying to sell stuff that like they just kind of are this ecosystem and it seems like the hub is this place that people hang out.
2: Yeah, and it's also there's an economic component too because, you know, these shops have been traditionally black owned um and you look at employment opportunities of, you know, you get your barber's license, you can rent a chair for however much it is for the day. You know, you don't need nobody's doing background checks. Nobody's mm. checking your checking your credit record if you can cut hair. Um, you know, that's one of the that's one of the only that's one of the most viable uh oper- uh what am I trying to say, employment options open. Um And
0: we saw that with Michael uh Ely's character, right? He is a two time mm-hmm. felon. Third
2: Strikes, yeah. you're out. Yeah. Thanks to the Clintons. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and how, how cool is it for Michael Ely playing like all gangstered out? Like, yeah. I that's mean, because his this career is, has been totally different. Totally
0: different. This Amazing. is one of the first roles I ever saw him in, though. Yeah. So, like, that was kind of the foundation for me. But um,
1: I did find that funny because, like, you could kind of tell out of all of them, he was like very polished. And I don't know. It just, it maybe it's just so I couldn't unsee him from other movies and stuff that I've seen yeah. him in, but I was like, yeah, well, I, I did kind of
0: want to talk about that. The like the economics, uh, the job, like the station and how we look at these jobs because they discuss it. Right. Um, they say like, you know, a barbershop is a good trade. Uh, being a barber is a good trade. And Sean uh, Patrick Thomas, Jimmy Jams, uh, which is a great name. You know, he's kind of like an educated asshole and he's kind of shitting on people. He's like, Well, I went to college. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And they get in an argument like, Well, this is a good profession. Um, So I was kind of thinking about how we look at jobs, especially in the US, if you're not a doctor, lawyer, uh, or this blue, or blue that. Blue color
1: versus white color type yeah, thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, Well, this is a good job. They care about what they do. They're passionate about it. So I, I thought that was an interesting, you know, commentary there, on that. There's a history
2: behind it, too. I mean, if you look back in the black community going, you know, like 30s and 40s and 50s before government jobs were opened up to black folks, because, you know, if I look at certainly my grandparents' generation and even my parents' generation um, growing up and I was born in D.C., grew up in Baltimore, and the pinnacle for black folks, working class black folks, get a government job, get a job okay. at the post office post or the off, office, yeah. that was like the safe career thing. You could save up, get yourself a house. But before those kind of jobs were integrated, you know, it was cutting hair, barbering, you know, learning how to give somebody a shave. Again, it's like this whole self-reliant thing of like, what can I do with very little capital outlay? All you'd need is a blade, you know, nowadays, clippers. So I think it is historically it's a very it's it's very much centered in the history of
1: black America. Mm. It's interesting, yeah. I mean, it's interesting as well to have like the the different generations of the barbers in there. Like you were saying, there's the kind of the guy who's almost acting like he's too good to be a barber, and then there's the the older guy who like was there, you know, has been there for forty years. There Said is a the hilarious tangent he goes on that i want to bring up where he was like talking shit on rosa parks and like he just brings up all these controversial like opinions she Um, was just tired what's
2: that (laughs) she was just tired she sat down on the bus well that's that that (laughs) scene i mean that launched cedric's like mainstream career like people knew him he had done kings of comedy Mm -hmm. before that that was a big film but this if you look at his you know if you look at his career roles before barbershop and after barbershop, it's a, it's a market difference. Yeah. And now, you know, he's doing what CBS yeah. like, sitcom show.
0: Yeah. And, uh, he did such a good job, just like his line delivery. Yeah. And yeah, he's, he's a fantastic actor.
1: But it is, it is true. Like he was, you know, he gives the perspective of what it was like back in the day. I mean, this is from 2002. So even from now, looking back 21 years, it feels like, Old because, like you were saying, David, like back in the day, you used to get paid to jump the line. Like now, people make appointments. I think they go, you know, for me, for my hair appointment, I text my hairdresser, I show up at the time. There's no sitting around, there's no waiting. Everyone's busy. Everyone has a cell phone, everyone has blah, blah, blah. So it's like this return to. I don't know. I just found it interesting to like be looking at it from 21 years in the future and then that guy recounting like what it was like in the 60s. You kind of have these leapfrogs of times and just how things have changed. Because I don't know. I think now if someone tells you they're a hairdresser, maybe in LA, they're like, I'm a hairstylist. And you're like, oh, she probably makes bank or he makes bank. But yeah, I still think there is that, like you were saying, that pre-conceived idea of what it is that you do and how much money you make and where Mm -hmm. you're standing in society is and all of that stuff
0: but the other side of that think how good you feel after a haircut like i haven't done this in a while even just shaving like the baldy you know what i mean i'm feeling good like somebody in my acting class was like yeah we were referring to you the other day like we we refer to you as hot david because we didn't know your last name and i was like what Hot David, but like you get a good haircut. David, I just slipped that into the podcast. I, oh He's like, God. guys, everyone
1: I, I, thinks I'm hot. Exactly. Don't worry. Don't worry about Even it. though I'm bald, I'm still sexy. <laughs> yeah, Don't my, worry. My
0: girlfriend's like, oh, that's the worst thing they could have told you.
1: Um, <laughs> but I'm just
0: saying, like, you walk I, I used to walk out of the barber shop and you know, my chin's a little bit higher. And that confidence you kind of have, you're feeling good about your hair, and like, okay, I'm going, I'm hanging out this weekend or doing whatever. So they give you um that, that profession, like gives people confidence, makes people yeah. feel good about themselves. The guy that went to that uh, job interview, right? He got the job. He just needed a little cut. He got the job. He's getting his uh, his niece out of that situation. It's just, uh, they do a good service too for people.
2: Well, it's, it's funny too, the flip side of that. Like I grew up raised by a single mom. So there were very few male figures in my life, role models. And, you know, you're talking about the confidence coming out of a barbershop, but I had a situation where you know, my mom would take, I remember one time she took me to, a. I think it was a new barbershop in Baltimore, new for us. And she said to the guy, you know, she's going through stuff. She had left my father. And so there's a lot of emotional stuff she's dealing with and stuff. She's And she told him, like, don't cut his hair too close because he has a funny shaped head. And just that one comment that to this day, she will swear she never said, like, that really fucked me up, you know? And no! that, now, so, much, so much of the time, like, my concept of barbering and getting a haircut was wrapped around... Was wrapped around that, mm-hmm. and it wasn't until like I got to college, I think, and um I decided for some reason I decided you know I'm going to be a jazz musician. So it was this monk like dedication, and I would practice eight hours a day every day, and I shaved my head, and I was like, this is like you know it's like the movie, this is the moment when he crosses the oh, room into yeah. his new thing, <laughs> and I you know and I went to get my haircut, and then I looked in the mirror, I was like, I don't have a funny shape,
0: <laughs> you well,
2: know, and I think, <sighs> yeah, you know. My That's, did, solid after that station barbershops point
0: if you get a bad cut too like not head shape but i remember walking out of uh, is there cost cutters still around? This was yeah, maybe yeah. in the Midwest. So cost cutters is like a chain of people don't know. And we used to go, my mom used to take us when we were kids to cost cutter before we started like cutting our own hair and they weren't the best barbers or hairstylists, whatever, especially like me and my two older brothers. So my brother got a cut one day. He was like crying. He had to bring the hat out, you know what I mean? Yeah, For the next yeah. like three weeks so it could grow back in. And then a couple of those. And then we like, we saved up, got a clippers and then, and then our brothers like started cutting our own hair, things like that. But a bad cut can go
1: that other way as well.
2: Yeah. When you walk out of the barbershop with a hat on, that's
1: bad. <laughs> that's I mean, bad as, a, as, a, as a barber or a hairdresser, you should be embarrassed that someone wants to, you know, yeah. cover up your work, essentially. <laughs> um, but it's funny, isn't it, Amadou, going back to what you said, like, so much of what we think about ourselves, what we know about ourselves, sometimes it's just parroted from stuff that people have told us. And it's amazing... Oh, sure. It's amazing how that can affect you. I don't know. I've been doing a lot of like self-development and reading these books. And it's like, if you always say to yourself like, okay, so I just had to hand in some green card information. I basically I'm on a green card, but, um, after two years, I have to like remove these restrictions. And it's a whole thing. If you've ever had to do like visa stuff or government shit, it's so fucking stressful. And I kept being like, I'm so bad at government paperwork. I'm so bad at like reading the fine details. And then I've been reading this book. And it's like, if you always tell yourself something, it's always going to like self-fulfill the prophecy. Right. And I'm actually not bad at this stuff. I'm actually have lived in multiple countries. I just like, tell myself this and anyway so it's it's the same with like your appearance if you go oh i have like funny shaped ears so i always have to have it longer or whatever and then yeah to turn around as like an adult and be like now i'm actually looking at it with my own two eyes and i don't have a weird shaped head like imagine if you'd been free of that your whole life it's like so and that's
2: that's the thing too is like that comment from my mother you know but then when i was getting my hair cut. Like, none of the barbers ever said I had a funny shape. You know, so at least I had some backup of, like, Mm -hmm. you know, because they could give it a look like, dude, like, we should keep it a little long on the side or on the back or whatever.
0: But they study that, too, right? It's like, hey, maybe we should do this because this is how your head's shaped. Not like it's bad or good or whatever, but that. And then Paris, to your point, it's like... We get these seeds in our head and then, yeah, we can be the ones watering them, even if we didn't plant them there. And you just oh, keep pouring, pouring. And then one day you're like, man, fuck that. Let's chop this thing down. But and it's you, like, you, 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 you kind of see that in the there. movie
1: too with the guy that thinks he's so fucking smart. I love that scene where the one guy goes, and actually, what is it? the uh, mollusk, not a clam.
2: Yeah, he's saying oysters. it's uh, oysters.
1: No, it's uh, not. It's...
2: No, it's uh, mm. um, something that's not a shellfish. Yeah,
1: and he's like, it's a mollusk, and it comes wrapped yeah. into shells, uh, and the guy's scallop. taking it back. scallops Yeah, scallop. Uh, but and you see, but you also see it like. Okay, I do want to talk about. We're getting on tangents, which I do <laughs> love. We'll come back to the barber shop because it is the main focus of the film. But let's talk about some of the side characters. So. The the convenience store man, so cute. Mm -hmm. Love him. You know, he, what I loved about this movie was like, okay, this is totally an outsider perspective as well. But like you have these core people in the barbershop and they're like, you know, they're these like, they're joking around. They've all known each other for a long time. And then you've got the convenience store guy. You've got the African shoe shiner guy who they are very mean to at one point. I want to bring up that sort of racist. He does like tick tock noises with his mouth. And I was like, whoa, that's... Shady. And then there's the white guy in the barbershop who, you know, at first I was like, who is this guy just pretending to like appropriate black culture? And then at the end, he has his little impassioned speech where he's like, this is who I am. And this is who I'll be tomorrow. And you wish you had like my confidence and the swag. And then he does a haircut and he's actually really good at it. So I loved these like three outsider characters, and I want to talk about them. What do you think, David? Did you have a new appreciation for it, watching it this time, especially um, after? So, you know? yeah, I,
0: I kind of probably took out some of the negative Things that they talk about, they're talking about the store clerk, especially like Cedric the Entertainer, they're saying is like Indy or Pakistani. And then I don't care if he's blah, 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 like making fun of him a little bit. And then um, with Isaac's character, the the white barber, same thing. They just, Sean Patrick Thomas just keeps going at him, going at him, going at him. Um, but what I do like about this movie is that they, they expose that which happens in life. And then they say like, it's more about acceptance with this film. And they put that in there What that shop owner comes back. Cause ice cube was like, Hey, stay strong brother. He's like, you know what? I was having a really shitty time and I thought about your words and you know what? It is fine. And the funny thing is there's no money in that ATM. And he's like, I'm good. Like, you know how to pay me for this. And then same with, uh, with Isaac, uh, Sean Patrick Thomas was giving him shit the whole time. And then he's like, you know what, man, fuck, I, I, I have been an asshole. Why don't you give me a cut? And they kind of found, you know, that uh, he, Jimmy Jams, Sean Patrick Thomas was not an asshole to him a, anymore. Isaac felt good about that. He's like turned and he's like smiling. He's like, yeah, I do got it. So I, I, there are some things that I was like, oh, kind of a red flag in this movie, but they end up um, like showing more of acceptance in this movie and it's like more feel good.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, too, the thing I'm curious about is Isaac, like if uh, Mark and the other writers of the film, if the studio had them put a white character in because you don't really need it for the story. I mean, it fits thematically with some stuff, but you could have covered that. Or the other possibility is maybe preemptively you put a thing because, you know, you think you're selling like a, a movie with an all black cast, basically set in Chicago in a barbershop in 2002. Right. Like that's not. That's pulling a fucking boulder up a hill. Pushing a boulder up a hill, right? So I'd be curious to know if I ever, you know, meet them, get the chance to to pick their brain and just know where the genesis of that character came from. But and it's but it's played very well and it's sincere and it's like, you know, like Dave's saying, it's a feel good movie. And it's this is the thing about Barbershop, it's a comedy, but it's a very sweet movie. Mm-hmm. It is. At, at its heart, it's a very sweet
1: but it Sorry. it also it also tackles, you know, when you were saying that, David, I was thinking about like Eve's character. She's the only woman in this incredibly male dominated environment. And Amadou, you were saying like a barbershop tends to be quite a male dominated space as well. Like traditionally, it's almost like. But then again, like you know, I when I think about the main group, when you really, t- c- it's hard in an ensemble. And I was thinking about this in the first five minutes of the film, because like a lot of times I'll write something and then I'll get a note back. Like there's just too many characters that you're introducing us to. And that kind of is a similar vibe in this film. It's a little bit overwhelming. You just, you know, I mean, you get little snippets, like, you know, the uppity guy is in the <laughs> in the coffee shop and he's like, got the most insane coffee order. I would actually love to go to a coffee shop with you, David, and try to order exactly what this guy ordered (laughs) and see what the fuck it tastes like. Or if the coffee person's like, get out of my place, you know? (laughs) But like, you see him do a brief thing. Then you see like Eve's interaction with her like cheating boyfriend. And then you see like, yeah, Ice Cube's character. Like every single person in this film has their struggle. As a collective, it's hard to pick out necessarily like which one's struggling the most, except if it's like the white guy where you're like, okay, why do you sound like that? Why are you in this movie? Or like, you know, these, these outsiders that look like outsiders from their, physical appearance but then you realize like everybody feels like an outsider you know from the guys robbing the convenience store because they need money or whatever you know from from the african guy who just wants to be loved and wants to be a barber and is trying to fit into america like it's just interesting
0: but i for isaac though and with him being in this movie it's he could have grown up up the street from that barbershop, right? Sure, sure. And yeah. That's what I'm, I'm just saying, like why he's in this movie. And I'm thinking about like kids, I, I grew up in like predominantly white schools and, you know, middle school, everybody would love, everybody I played football with love rap. Right. And then fast forward a couple of years in high school, they're talking about how like just rap genres trash and all this stuff and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, you weren't saying that three, four years ago. You're a totally different person. Like, so you're kind of fake. Are this you saying I- white people take
1: culture and then yeah. discard it when <laughs> well, it doesn't ex- exactly, fit them? That is exactly. shocking and new but information.
0: Isaac was who he was. And he's like, "Hey, I'm gonna be this tomorrow, and the next day, and mm-hmm. the next day." And you gotta respect that. And it might have been t- troublesome or hard for him to break through to people, especially Sean Patrick Thomas. But if you, he kept showing up. He's gonna work, and he can cut hair, and he is who he is. And then you get, but that, we get, we get the spectrum. Respect. Then
1: you've got an actually African guy working in the shop, and they're so, so dismissive of him.
0: Yes, Whoa. but again, so I'm gonna go ahead.
2: No, I was going to say that's a I mean, that's a real, real split between black Americans and African Americans, Africans who come here first generation like on the outside. It might look like a monolithic thing, but that's a very, very big oh, divide yeah. because I mean, you just look at culturally what America exports about black people in the media portrayal. So anybody in any country, whether it's Africa, whether it's India, whether it's wherever has you know, preconceived notions of black people, and then you tack on it this, you know, the immigrant story of I came here with five dollars in my pocket and I built up a thing and I run all the donut shops in L.A. or I do this thing or I do that. Then, yeah, you can say, I think legitimately your question is, okay. well, if you and your people have been here for like 300 years, how come you don't have your shit together yet? Not understanding the just institutionalized dynamics. Mm
0: -hmm. And I mean,
2: I had this conversation two weeks ago with a neighbor of mine in, in New York, um great guy from Yemen's raising his kids working in like a you know convenience store and he's like yeah this is a great country anybody here who can't work like they're just lazy because you could just anybody could just get a job and and like look I can't fault him for that because if you come here as an adult and you just look at the landscape yeah it looks like we're just lazy and we don't have our shit together um and and again and that's not a that's not always the racial line. Like you can come from Africa, you could be Nigerian, Senegalese, come back here. Or, you know, you could talk about how Nigerians feel about Ghanaians or how, Ghanai, you know, mm-hmm. Ghanaians have a certain reputation of this is their kind of thing. Will Senegalese do this or Nigerians are good at this or these, you know. So it's a really broad spectrum, which I think, yeah, it's 2002. So it's not going to be the most subtle take on it, but I think it points to something very, very real, just as real as the Isaac character. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I think that's something that's important to, to, that was certainly important to get out there at that time because Mm. nobody's really talking about it, but everybody has experienced it.
1: Yeah. I think it's also important, like, obviously, like you were saying, Amadou, to make this film was probably such a Goliath effort, you know, to like drag this boulder up a hill. But I think for dumb, dumb white people like me, it just shows like there are, you know, there is, it's not like. It's like the Asian community. Like I saw a documentary and it was like, did you know that like Filipinos make up like the second biggest um, Asian popu- population in America? But when you, you know, people are just like, oh, they're Asian. It groups it together. And actually mm-hmm. like Filipinos have a very different like background from the Chinese, from the Koreans. You know, everybody has their specific culture. And so I think you know, middle America might look at a film like Barbershop and be like, it's a black movie, like, you know, and sort of categorize it like that. And then you actually dig into the surface. And that's what I was saying. Like every single person has their thing. What I did love was that the outsiders, like the African guy, the white guy, and then the the guy on the corner, the convenience store, you could tell, like you were saying, Amadou, like people come to this country and they are just like so enamored. They're like, I'm going to make it. It's the American dream. And did you notice every single one of them was in love with like, a strong black african or american black mm-hmm, woman like it was just like funny it was like ice cube was noticing this for the first time like he sees the hot wife of like the convenience store guy the super <laughs> hot chick gets out of the car from the white guy and the, uh, the super smart guy is like what the fuck like it's just so it's just yeah. so funny to me yeah they, they're in like they're all in on the culture
0: to to your point though like with people probably um you know the african Character coming over and seeing that it's also how we how we view things and you talk about like being grateful for what you have, but if you're in this country. You know, growing up black, like, oh, look at how Milwaukee's been set up since I've been before I was born and Mm -hmm. still the same bullshit today. I'm going to probably say the same thing for D.C., Baltimore. Right. And but you got people coming over here that might have been even from shittier situations and more like an oppressive government with no like uh, social structure or help. And they come over here. It's like, oh, I can do this. I love this country. But kids that grew up in Milwaukee, Baltimore, D.C. that saw all this bullshit jobs or companies getting pulled out factories parents losing their jobs drugs all that shit and then they're like well fuck that you know what i mean you are gonna have some kind of chip on your shoulder so like i'm gonna say it's such a broad spectrum and yeah and like even um you know a refugee or whatever going from like nigeria to greece would have experienced a ton of racism Mm -hmm. and then coming here it's so it's all it's that whole thing is kind of wild to me Pretty but it's about identity too. I
2: mean, I think that's the big difference because when you look at any group that has come here, whether it's a developing country, whether they came fleeing refugee status oppression, like like my wife is uh is Bangladeshi. She was born in the States, but her parents grew up in well, it was India when they were born. But you know, Bangladesh, small country, not a lot of money, a lot of, you know, a lot of poverty um and a lot of corruption. But Man, the 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 pride, the national pride and identity of Bangladeshis. Oh yeah. When they it's nuts. Like, hmm. yeah, nineteen seventy one, man, was our independence. We could tell you this, we could do this, do this, this, this. Um, and I think so. Then when when you come here to this country as an immigrant with a with a very solid rooted sense of self and identity and of your history. Whereas here for black Americans,
1: for what we're taught in school, our history is just slavery and oppression. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas and, all, if, and, and it at, was all is stolen from you essentially because you might not know like what your heritage is oh like. it's not even might
2: like there's no way to know Like yeah. my father is actually african so i at least know where that half of me came from but that's that's pretty rare so i think if you if you talk about just you know the dynamics of what a difference knowing who you are knowing your history like you can you know. I was taught that slavery is our history but as an you know young man and adult I learned like slavery is the exception to our history yeah. as a people right mm-hmm. and that's that's a big big difference yeah. and that you know that transcends like economic socioeconomic status cuz then you believe that there's something out there for you
0: Just how you guys are saying with That thing that gets in your head. You thought your head was a certain way. Paris was saying she can't do something. Some kid growing up thinking slavery is all my history and that's it. When you start looking at some of these positive things or, you know, going to like an African American history museum, you're like, oh, shit. Oh, this person did that. This person invented this. They contribute. Yeah. And then you start feeling, oh, wow, you know. Right. And that's why this kind of
1: movie, I think, is important because... I know I've had this conversation with a number of my friends of color. It's like, we're tired of slave movies. We don't want to be re traumatized over and over again. Like, that's not the only thing about us. And I forget what the quote is. Maybe one of you knows it, but it's like, slavery is something that ha- was inf- done to the community. It's not something that they like. Basically, like, you know, you can choose as well for that not to be your entire identity. Like, oh, we're descended from from slaves and that sort of thing. Like, I don't know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> well, I mean, but that,
2: I mean, if you're talking about that, the, the issue with those is that most of those movies are for a white audience. Like that's an education of slavery was really bad. Like if you, you know, there's been a few that, that it's funny. Like I've got a, a feature that I wrote specifically because we don't ever see ourselves as anything other than just vessels of unspeakable brutality and oppression. Right. right? Like, You can be enslaved and still have a complex, rich, layered life with hopes and dreams, desires. Mm -hmm. Somebody's an asshole. Somebody's great. Somebody's this. Just like in Victorian England. Right. Um, And I think the thing with the with the black trauma porn is that first and foremost, it's sometimes it's an educational vehicle for people who are still, you know, in this country, we're still debating. Was slavery really that bad? (laughs) You know, like that's that's where we are. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. That's a whole that's a whole nother thing of, I don't think those movies are for us as a as a people by and large. I mean, right. you know, it could be black filmmakers making it, you know, because sometimes we. All right, I'm not going to say it's not for us, but I think it's a, such about a, a corrective of history, like we're still at the point where we're having to say, hey, look, this shit really happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but you you don't want to you don't want to see that all day, no, every no. day. <sighs>
1: Ugh. Well, this but this movie is like, I don't know, I've had conversations (laughs) with writers more specifically where they're like, I'm just writing characters that are black and they're not like super informed by the trauma inflicted upon generation after generation. Like this is just a joyful movie about a group of guys working at a barbershop. And yes, like we were discussing in the beginning, there's a cultural significance and it's, you know, specifically tied to that community and that experience. But it's not like they don't like bring up like that. You know, there's obviously mention to the two-time felon, and you can see, like, I just wrote down a couple of notes, and one of them was like, I think it's the older guy, the um, the entertainer, Cedric the Entertainer, where he goes, "Black people don't know how to act," and I was like, you know, what? What are you saying about? It was just like, again, like all this conversation about like Rosa Parks was just tired. I just found the whole dialogue of it, probably as an outsider, very interesting you know well
2: but i think that's real too and i think you know what even says in the line is like okay since it's us just us if it was a room full of white people i wouldn't say this i mean i think that's Mm -hmm. that's kind of the brilliance of that movie is that it is dealing with universal themes but it's set in such a specific time and place that you can get into nuances where you know and i think that's why that that scene jumped off so big with cedric i mean just the media after that like you know, it's like he's dissing Rosa Parks. Like that's mm-hmm. the one thing you can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know Martin Luther King. Okay, he had his women on the side, whatever. But you can't yeah. see Rosa Parks. You know, uh, and then they lighten it up where he's like, "Fuck Jesse Jackson." You know, yeah. but
0: Jesse Jackson, that was a, that was a big Jackson. deal when yeah. he
2: when he said that because we're like, "Oh, you're saying that shit out loud now."
0: Action Ex- Ex- Jackson. Um, yeah,
2: yeah. My, <laughs> Randy Tito, any, anybody can get Marlon. Him.
1: Yeah. He he was a great he was a great mirror. I think he was like able to be that character that like. Michael well, Ealy
0: says it though as well, and that's when uh, Sean Patrick Thomas like kind of says like, "Oh, I agree with that stance," and they kind of get into it because Michael Ealy saying it's like, "Yeah, if they're talking about reparations, he's like, what we would need to do is this, this, and this, not buy you know an extravagant car if you're still living with mom, pay, help mm-hmm, mom pay the bills, mm-hmm. buy some yeah. groceries, do that that type of thing," and like yeah. yeah, being hearing older white men say some of this shit to me or around me. So I, I'm an earshot. I'm like, who the fuck are you? You know what I mean? Get upset about it. But then I have had these talks with, you know, like cousins or, you know, shit like that. So it is kind of, it's, yeah. No, there's the truth.
2: You talk among your Mm -hmm. among yourselves, but you don't want to hear that from somebody who's benefiting from that shit. Cause, but I think that's true. I mean, we got to give this much credit for, they made a comedy, a mainstream comedy that talked about reparations that Mm -hmm. talked about the inability of felons to get hired that talk, you know what I mean? It, it, I think sometimes we lose sight of how hard it is to get that into films, especially if we're looking at it through a twenty twenty three lens. But
1: you know, two thousand two. Come on, it's it's amazing. I think people are also nervous to touch it. I think, I think the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, people. I just look back at like how involved some people were with posting about stuff. I mean, the Black Square on Instagram was a whole fucking thing. But you know, and then. And then it's like, well, people just they just don't want to touch it. And this film like went there. And and okay, it did it with a comedic bent, but it really raised some some questions and some things. And it was like a conversation that you felt like you were allowed to have access to um as an outsider for me anyways. I was like, Oh. Yeah. They wouldn't have know.
2: been able to make this movie if it was a drama. Like they would you no. know what I'm mean? saying? Just like you gotta give them the ice cream if you're gonna throw some broccoli and spinach in there. How I and say I think- that
1: bake the spinach into the cake. Like, there yeah. you
2: go. And that's the genius of it, because ultimately, what are you, you know, you're trying to get a message out. You're trying to I mean, this is a movie that 2002 depicts black men in a positive light. But that's mm-hmm. also realistic. OK, so Michael uh, Ricky, he went to jail. He did time, but he's clearly a good person. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And he doesn't take the gun and go after go after the guy. So it's not fantasy land. Like everybody's got an MBA and, you know, driving a Porsche, but mm. it's also not Everybody's just succumbing to what's out there. I think you know you got to give a. I mean, it's not super easy to make that movie today. (laughs) Even Mm -hmm. you know we don't see that many of them, but we weren't seeing any in two thousand two.
0: That's why, like with comedy, you can disarm people. Yeah, which is great.
1: But but also like you were saying, not not to live in fantasy land with this with this world. We still have bad guys that take advantage of a situation like but then I wrote that down because I wasn't sure what was going to happen at the end because I was like he's like threatening to call the police on this guy like that seems very like snitchy which I feel like is a not I don't know. There was still like people taking advantage of each other, you know, like um, David, what's his name? David Anthony. I saw him on a plane recently. He was the only person not wearing a mask. And I was like, oh, uh, Anthony Anderson. I was like, is he doing that? Because when I flew back from New York, I was like, is he just trying to get people to notice (laughs) him? I was (laughs) like, (laughs) hey, we see you. Um, But like he, you know, he fucking steals from his cousin, Ricky, like in the opening scene, the bumper gets ripped off and the license plate gets left behind. And then when when Ricky gets picked up and he's in jail, he's like, "Ha ha, motherfucker!" Like, by the time you get out, like I, w- you'll never see me again. Like, these characters are flawed. They're still like fucking each other over. They're, you know, but then they're learning. I don't know. Right. It's like, but I-
2: sorry. Sorry. No, I was I- just,
1: gonna, I was just gonna say, like, I think, like, if it was like, if this was like created by a white person, it would be like everyone's doing perfectly, like you were saying, like everyone's perfect. But you see these like different facets of life and people. F- being assholes like everybody's selfish at their core i
2: don't know but it's also the two you know quote-unquote criminals in the movie like you feel for them because it's such a it's such a slapstick kind of thing like you don't you're not making them not be criminals but you're also not demonizing them as irredeemable characters that you see with both of them if they just had a shot at something clearly they would rather be doing something other than this like it points at like the desperation of that of like you know, we're carrying this ATM up a flight of stairs. So I think that's the value <laughs> of when you have, you know, when you have black people making movies or in decision-making positions, making movies about black people is, yeah, you can say not everybody's not, you know, the Cosby family, but let's still look at these as as like real characters with dimension that we can have empathy and sympathy for and actually root for like, you know, if they had gotten away with it, as long as Ricky didn't get jacked, have, you know, nobody would have been super mad at that because they were they were like Mutt and
1: Jeff. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That was too. Cr- They're hilarious. Yeah. That was,
1: I was going to say that was <laughs> my. <laughs> small, man. That's, a yeah. for that. <laughs> but then, that was uh, that was also my favorite storyline because they just like literally <laughs> had this completely parallel storyline. I don't even think. um obviously the one guy goes to the, to the barber store, but I don't think Anthony Anderson was really in any scenes with people until the very end when there was kind of that confrontation, Mm -hmm. he kind of like all his stuff was like separate, which was funny (laughs) to have this like B storyline running through.
0: He's so talented. Uh, when he turns a corner, when the cops are behind him and he puts it up against the wall, and he's like,
2: <laughs> Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> he's like looking over his shoulder, and then the yeah. line starts to pour behind him. I said, It's broken. Oh, yeah, my God. Yeah. He's like, So getting uh, more and more frustrated and frustrated with the situation and that they stole this thing. And then I geek out every time without a fail when that big dude comes down <laughs> the stairs. And- <laughs> <laughs> I was going to bring that up. That was, yeah. and
1: then when he squeezes past yeah, them and he's and- like, Oh, and, and, and they the do way it they, twice And yeah. the way yeah.
0: they shot it Oh my yeah. god It's yeah. so good It's just Because uh, you've been In a situation like that Come on man Don't Like yeah. you bad, could Really bro. Really For real? <laughs> <just> <laughs> No but yeah.
1: There was a lot of Physical comedy in this I mean Ice Cube is a very Physical funny actor Like his face Is very expressive But like Just throughout the film I thought it was like Yeah It's a lot
2: of stand ups In that movie I mean you know Cedric was a stand up Anthony Anderson Was a stand up first D. Ray, he's D-ray. a stand-up. Mm-hmm. So you have like, Chicago too. you have that whole that whole class of you know you, you've got stand-up comedians in that movie, and that gives it that edge to it that you know it's just hilarious. And Keith David, man, like look, we got to shout out him because he plays like the cartoon villain. Like <laughs> you could just see like an animated version of him. He's just got such fake great facial expressions. He raises his eyebrow, goes up like three inches. His
0: voice too.
1: I yeah. had to look his, him up because he has I feel a fantastic like, voice. You've I mean, seen him in a ton of stuff, I bet. Yeah, I recognize him. But yeah, his voice, when I looked at his IMDb, he's done a ton of like cartoons and adult mm. like animation and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, he's yeah. got a, but he definitely has one of those plastic faces as well that is just so expressive. Like when he goes to return the 20,000 and he turns his back and then he turns back around yep. like this evil villain. I was like, if this was like a spoof movie, you'd laugh because it's so. He's like been, silly,
0: he's been doing it forever too. He was in yeah, Platoon, yeah. Um, Dead Prez, or yeah, Dead Prez. Oh man, and- he was
2: in uh, he was in Pie, right? Darren Aronofsky's film. Mm-hmm. I'm not that sure. Okay. He's, in, see, he's in everything. We need to yeah. see
1: more of him. I think he needs like his own yeah. like half hour Abbott Elementary type comedy. No, that's, I mean. that's
2: long overdue. And in the theater world too. Like I saw yeah. him do I saw him do Othello.
1: Oh wow! Oh shit! Yeah. But no, they were all they were all cute. I mean, listen, I think it's it's a standout ensemble, like you were saying. It's kind of hard, you know, you pick on like some of the outliers. But even like um, the woman who played Ice Cube's wife, like she was great. Like there was just a lot of nuance in the performances. There was a lot of like interesting emotional ties. Like every it just showed me that it wasn't just like these individuals. It was a spider web. Everybody was connected in some way, you know. I don't know. I guess it's it just boils down back to like the community of it all. Mm-hmm. So
2: it's it's funny you mentioned her because I feel like that's the one character where you can tell like oh, yeah, it's two thousand two.
1: Yeah, they just jack jacked her wife in as like a plot like, device.
2: <laughs> she doesn't have any agency and she's like the whiny person. You know, she's just always complaining and always riding him about stuff. And you know, I think they have Eve in a role. So it was almost like there's not space for there wasn't space then to have two women have agency. It'd be a little complex. Yeah. But listen, if that's the worst thing you can say about it because
1: we always talk about that like we're because you know we did She's All That with Gab Union and she's just like a plot device like she's just this random person that pops in and has lines I will say though like it does it's important to have in a film like this to see the different you know, what's driving him to do it. And then, like, even though his father is dead, we have this, like, generational trauma that we kind of get through just, like, a painting, um, you know, wanting to prove to him. The other woman we get, of course, is the woman who owns the nail salon next door, who's a gossip. So we do have <laughs> these two slightly uh, whiny, shrill women but, on the fringes. <laughs> to be fair, and even though I brought it up, they did follow up
2: with the whole Beauty Shop series. It's of true. So, you know, yeah. I think it's it's just if, Eve, this, right? if
1: this movie is a standalone, you're like, yeah, there's kind of one woman character. But yeah, like you said, it's not the worst.
2: Oh, there's, yeah. There's many more (laughs) egregious examples.
1: (laughs) Um, Anything else that stood out to you for the movie, guys, before we jump into talking about Armadou and his beautiful career? I I would say
0: we got to stay on, you know, on point with this podcast. They, they use the R word as derogatory, just had to Mm -hmm. say it. Otherwise I wouldn't respect myself in the morning. And I think 2002 or early nineties, you just don't have, you can have, um, you know, you can make fun of somebody or call somebody stupid or an idiot. Well he does using he calls them the R word an R-word
1: and then he says, Are you stupid, simple, or slow? Yeah. yeah right yeah. after So that.
0: I'm just you you can use something else. And it just that didn't hold up right over yeah. twenty years. So
1: Yeah, I mean we see that a lot in these early two thousand movies. That word was used, you know, throughout Apatos, films, like all mm-hmm. of them. Now it's like you would cringe, of course. Um but Yeah, they definitely said it. I agree with you. I was like, I wonder if we'll bring that up. (laughs) I I had to. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, I mean, it's it's an interesting film. I'm glad I saw it. You know, it obviously brings up a lot of interesting topics um, regarding all of that. And also, like, I thought it was interesting that it was set in Chicago, which I know is a very black city is that right i think it is right
0: parts of it it, yeah it's segregated as hell just like uh, just like milwaukee i think i haven't looked in a few years but top five cities like segregation like chicago and milwaukee were consistently in that top five which is crazy
2: yeah. I'm yeah. assuming that somebody, one of the writers, or maybe Tim, what is from Chicago. Because it could have been, it could have been in Detroit. It could have been in Philly. Mm-hmm. It could have been in New York. You know, and obviously everybody thinks Ice Cube, you know, being out here. Um, but yeah.
1: Well, also, um, just at one point, Ice Cube's character calls it the ghetto, and like it just felt like I don't know, I just recently watched Training Day for the first time and just the way they made LA look so dangerous. And then like you could tell they were trying to make it seem like Chicago was like so dangerous. But then, you know, when he accidentally puts the, the ATM up against the wall, there's all these people lining up and they just look like normal people. Like it didn't, mm. you know, I didn't feel like this was a super dangerous neighborhood, but it kind of felt like they were insinuating that it was borderline, you know, like he said, he used the term ghetto. So it was like... And then I just was researching a little bit in like Chicago and how there's a lot of crime there and a lot of shooting and oh, uh, typically, you know, stereotypically. And I just was like, oh, I wonder if that's why they said it there. But I think well, it was also like you could you said, have chosen any number of <laughs> yeah. cities. But yeah. also, I think
2: they leaned into not that it's a dangerous city, but that it's an over policed city. I see. Yeah. You know,
1: there were a lot of police just che- just checking. What's he doing? Slowing yeah. down if they're having a fight.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And those getting letters to the councilmen in white neighborhoods.
1: Yeah.
0: Also too, you um maybe they wanted it in winter, right? So you had to pick a a colder city, populated city. So that kind of cuts some of the warmer states out.
1: Yeah. And I think if we're talking about like aesthetically and we keep coming back to this idea of the barbershop, the title of the film. You know, people are coming in from the cold. This is like a warm place. It's inviting. It's a hub. So that's why I kind of was like, I wonder if that's why they're doing, you know, like in the winter, you you will go to a place and you'll stay. And it kind of, I don't know. It just, it did feel like the barbershop itself was kind of like a beacon. And then that's why we had all the characters coming in. Um, but Yeah. Yeah,
2: I think the season thing tracks because if you think about it, if it was set in the summer, you, there's not a lot of exterior scenes in that movie. It's mm-hmm. it's in the barbershop. It's at his house. Um, so, you know, it's a, a budget thing, right? So nobody has to go take a trip out to the beach and, you
1: know. Yeah, it's really not a lot of um, locations. It's the back room. It's the barbershop. It's grandma's house or grandma's shed. It's yeah, it's his mom's house. Yeah, that was a funny line where she's like, some people don't know how to raise their kids. And then they went through the door and it was them (laughs) trying to break into the.
0: (laughs) Anthony has to visit his grandma. He's like, what'd you say? Motherfucker never visits me or something like that. What'd you say,
1: grandma? Oh, I can't see your hair too good. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. (laughs) uh it was fun um well okay well let's talk a little bit more about you guys i mean the film is the film we love it it's 2002 everybody should go see it i think it's an important film to see and now that i've seen the first one i definitely want to go see what happens i'm like what's gonna happen in number two like is he gonna lose the barbershop again (laughs) i'm gonna say yeah all right
2: i'm just gonna say stay with this one stay with this one. okay don't go don't go further (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. it just lives in its own world there's no other okay got it um but no let's talk about you guys well obviously Amadou you're a writer you are out here right now finally marrying your two passions of music and and writing that must feel amazing to be back into something that you you know like you said you had a monk-like dedication when you were at university can you tell us about the experience of you know getting on a new show
2: yeah it's um no it's great because for me it's like the third room I've been in since like sept the fall of like so fall of 2021. So I'm super grateful for that. Um, and it's a project that I'm super excited about Sammy Davis Jr. Cause you know, as a jazz musician, you know, as you know, from like, I went on the road when I was 19. So, you know, I'd always heard stories about that and, you know, and having lived that lifestyle and just being on the road and no I just like to wake up in a hotel and open the blinds just to kind of figure out what city you're in, you know, cause it's just been like one nighter after one nighter. Um, And, you know, Sammy's just had such a complicated life. And I think, you know, the narrative on him as, you know, a sellout and always chasing after the white women and hugging Nixon, like all that stuff is super true. But he also opened a lot of doors for people and stuff that doesn't get talked about. So I think it's a really rich thing we could dig into. So I'm super excited about that. Um, And yeah, it's funny, you know, coming out of COVID, this is the first L.A. in-person room I've done. So, you know, it's nice to, you know, the lunches are
1: Yeah, the lunches are nice. The (laughs) weather is typically nice. Um, Typically. uh, How does it compare? Obviously, you know, you have been on Zoom and stuff, but do you feel like there's a different vibe creatively in L.A. to New York? Having sort of... Done both. I know you just kind of landed here, but you know you've been back and forth.
2: It feels similar. I mean, the show I was on before, Billions, that was a hybrid room, so I was in person in that. Like we had some writers who were in LA, but that was a New York room. Love Um, that show. Yeah, it feels it feels very similar. I think the big divide is just in person versus remote. Like that's just night and day. Because my first room was a mini room, and it was all remote and great experience, but there's just nothing like. Sitting across from people, you know, having a conversation in the hallway on the way to the bathroom, you know, um, and just, yeah, it's, it's just a totally for something as collaborative as making a TV show. Um, I get the benefits of Zoom and you could be anywhere. And there's also, you know, it makes it uh, it makes it feasible for for writers with disabilities. You know, that's a huge thing. I feel like it's opened up the pool of like not just people who are living in New York, who can afford to, I mean, living in LA, who can afford to make that move, but, um, all things being equal, like there's just no substitute. I feel like for being, for being in person and just shooting the shit, you know, Mm -hmm. just getting the day started in the room. It's like 10 minutes of like, yo, did you see this thing on YouTube or whatever? Yeah.
1: Well, the Uh, reason I asked as well though, is because I know you and I have had a conversation like, And I've had this conversation with other New York people. Like LA is such a film and TV town that it feels like a lot of like, uh, my friends are involved in the industry. I feel like a lot of my random conversations are sort of centered around the industry. I'm sure in the same way that a lot of people in DC, um, you know, work in politics, but New York is a very big city and it's a very diverse city where it seems like somebody might work in finance and then your neighbor might be a school teacher and then your other neighbor might be this. Whereas it it does seem, and listen, David and I know people that don't work in the industry, we're, we're in the same friendship group, but it's, it's definitely more common here for somebody to be connected to that. And so creatively as well, I'm just wondering if you feel like you get to draw from different parts of humanity and life, you know, living in a big city like New York.
2: Oh yeah. No, I definitely feel like living in New York since I was 19 it's definitely, definitely a big difference. I mean, LA is such a, a one industry town. Um, mm. Whereas in New York, I look at the friendships I've been able to make, the experience I've been able to have. Um, yeah, it's just across the board. And I think also I've always appreciated the sense of New York of not only the creative energy, but just the sense that like the person you just bump shoulders into in the street, that could be the next Einstein. That could be the next fashion designer, That could be the next everything. So I think there's a, I feel like New York has a, a, pretty good sort of meritocracy at least in the creative fields because you just never know like you don't shit on somebody that you haven't looked up on imdb because you never know like it's possible that they were some you know baller thing doing in this thing whereas i feel like haven't been here for all of eight days i feel like (laughs) is a town where it's much more like okay where do you live what kind of car do you drive where do you think there's all these markers that we're Mm going to judge you by whereas in new york man it's like the kid you know someone sitting on the train, train, yeah could be the next big thing. Can I ask you a little
0: bit about just, just being an artist? I mean, you, photography, writing, music, just is going to be a very broad question. But, um, as far as like newer artists or younger artists, like what kind of advice would you give those people just as far as like how you got, not got into it, but like what motivates you to, to do all the art and the different arts that you've
2: done?
1: Great question, David. Yeah,
2: yeah, no, that's a great question. I think um, I think for me, I've always been guided by just this feeling that there's something inside of me that I want to express. And, you know, my first opportunity to do that was as a musician, as a jazz musician. Uh, and I think they all build on top of each other. Like, I mean, jazz, you know, it's a completely underappreciated art form in the country that created it. Uh, but man, it's fucking hard. Like, that's the hardest thing I will ever do in my life is, you know, try to play giant steps in all the keys, like you know, just the mastery that's required of learning your instrument. Then you're responsible for like 130 years of like musical styles and traditions. Um, and then you got to know a thousand tunes. And then after you do all that, then people are like, okay, but what's your voice? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like you got to study all these, tools. you got to learn all the Coltrane stuff. I was the tenor saxophone player, so study Rollins, train Joe Henderson. Coleman Hawkins, Lester Young, all that stuff you're responsible for. And then people are like, once you get that done, okay, now what do you have to say? And it's almost it's almost unfair, right? Yeah. So I feel like to your question, I feel like being a jazz musician gave me a great grounding in two things. One, just the discipline of like, it's literally you're, you're practicing eight hours a day because there's just so much shit you're responsible for. And I remember when I got to undergrad and I decided this is what I wanted to do, it was literally nine to five, man, you're in the practice room and, you know, maybe laundry gets done that week. Maybe it doesn't, but you're going to be in there with your horn. And I think, so that discipline of just putting in effort day to day and knowing that that's going to pay off because with writing, right? Like you're going to have good days and bad days and you know that there's going to be plateaus and ups and downs, but the key is like, you keep doing it. Um, so I think that gave me a really strong grounding in that that's helped, but also like music, photography, journalism and you know film and tv they're separate things but they're all just really different manifestations of the same thing they're all storytelling right like so that's that's the common ground for me that makes it all sense makes it all make sense and now it makes sense like looking back on it but as you're going through the path i was like Man, music, photography, whatever. And I was, you know, my body was telling me to pursue that, but it didn't look like a career path Mm. or plan. Um, I mean,
1: from an outside perspective, I would say that like everything you just told us about jazz, like um, it's almost like you've always been drawn to mediums where you can take it and then break it or you can take it and have a new perspective. Because photography, like you and I could have the same camera and be standing in front of the same thing and you would shoot it totally different. But because of your... Whatever, like who you are, you take the different photo. And it seems like that's kind of what you're saying with music too. Like you learn the rules and then you kind of like, because I know there's lots of like free flow jazz. And then with writing too, like you and I could have the same topic, the same character names, everything. And we would come out with two totally different scripts. So from an outsider, it seems like it's all related. But I understand when you're in it, I'm sure also your family was like, Amadou, what in the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like pick oh, a stream. You, you
2: have no idea.
1: You have no, idea Paris.
2: Um, no, I think what you said is spot on. It's that that's the role of of the of the artist, right? Not to be pretentious about it, but it's that you've experienced life in a certain way that's different from I have, and it's different from David has, and you have experienced. You can go to you can go to a museum and look at a Rothko painting. And because of your life experiences, you take away something different than that painting than I am or that David is. And I think that's the beauty of art. So if you're talking about creating it, you have to first and foremost say, what can I bring to this? It's, you know, it's a thing of finding your voice, right? Which is hard. Like somebody says, find your voice. Like, how do you do that? But it's, I think that's, that's the key is that when you do that, and I feel like, you know, for getting started late into screenwriting, I think the thing that has really helped me is that you know, once you deal with like just the crafting, thing, OK, how do you write it, you know, an hour long pilot? Like, what's the structure of it? What are act breaks? All that other stuff. Once you get the craft part of it down, the, the question of what am I trying to say? Why am I writing this? I think for me, those were questions I had been used to asking myself in other mediums. Mm-hmm. And and I feel like that's what's enabled me to have the career that I'm having now is because like, you know, I'm not the most talented writer in the universe. Like that, that can never be a goal, right? There's always going to be somebody out there who's done it. There's people who're there. The room I'm in now, like everybody in the room, is at the producer level except me, right? So, but so what can I'm not going to outwrite them, you know? I need to be I need to be more than competent at it. But I've lived a different life than they have. I have yeah. different viewpoints. Mm-hmm. I have different things, and they're doing the same thing. So, like I think it's, you have to bring part of yourself to it. And I think um if we're going to tangent and rant for a minute, I think Please. that's the the biggest thing that I've learned over the last few years that I really wish I had known and, and that people aren't saying to folks trying to break into this industry. Like Everybody's like, work on the craft, get your pilots together, all that other stuff. 100% true. And you have to do it and you have to do it at a very high level, but that's not enough. It's not even close because now that I'm in a position where, you know, I'm reading scripts sometimes for people or for the fellowship program and they had us read submissions for the this upcoming class. Having a voice counts for a lot like that counts for if, you know, if your structure is a little bit shaky, that's fine. But if you if you have all the, the craft part of it together and you're just retelling a story that we've seen like a gazillion times on TV already, like that's just painful to sit through and read. Mm, yeah. Right. And so. I guess my thing is like the big advice I would say is like you need to whatever you're doing, whatever medium it is, you have to ask yourself, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this thing? Why am I telling this story? What am I trying to say with it? Why is it important to me? And it takes a lot of confidence to do that, right? Because you're like, who am I? I think this one way about it, the rest of the world might not agree. But when you dig into the personal and find the part that's meaningful for you, you got to believe like all the billions of people in this world, like that's going to resonate with somebody else, too, um, versus where you see people that do stuff that's just because this is what's been done or I'm going to try to, you know, please somebody else. It's like be true to yourself and let your truth come through. And our truths are always more interesting than we give them credit for. Right. Like I remember being, um, you know, doing one of those webinars of like, hey, how to break in in screenwriting and everybody's talking about their experiences. I think, no, I think it was how to write how to write the personal essay. Right. And man, one after another, people are coming up with just these traumatic childhood stories of I, oh like, my God. I fell down a well and I was raised by wolves <laughs> and, and all this stuff. And I was literally sitting there like, <laughs> me too. fuck man. If only, if only my mother had abandoned me on a street right. corner, but you know, cause we I'd don't think it, our you know? shit is
1: interesting. I think about that sometimes like, you know, as a white girl who like had a very privileged life, I'm like, man, I wish like I got lost in a supermarket for two weeks. So, you know, instead you have to like, when I was bullied in grade four, you know, it's just, but I don't think you need that trauma, like going the trauma board. Like it is, it's, it's your story. It's like, who are you? What do you,
0: but you could also understand trauma without having gone through trauma. Right, you can see someone's story and be like, "Oh wow, I get that, and then you can give that I mean, I don't write, but you could give that to your characters, right, yeah, so
1: I think my most recent essay, I applied for a a screenwriting uh what are they called like the getaways whatever like i was I was nominated by someone to go to this like screenwriting week in somewhere, Costa Rica or something, and it was like, tell us a story about yourself, and because I'm such a comedy person and I always feel like such an outsider I wrote about like my first week in LA when I was it's a true story I was invited to a dog wedding and they took it extremely seriously in the hills and like it's not traumatic but it was traumatic for me you know and I always think about that dog but that's my take like I came to America I see ridiculous things in LA and that's what I write about so I think what you're saying Amadou is like it doesn't have to be the worst story or the most it's like what's your take on it?
2: And it shouldn't be because then you're saying you're defining yourself by your trauma. So let's say you're meeting your generals, your things are open. I was, you know, sexually abused as a boy by the priest in my, or whatever, whatever, whatever. Like, OK, what kind of jobs are they going to look for you? For? You know, if they have like a rom-com, are they going to put you up for that? Or are they going to put you know what I mean? So but instead, I think if you can lean into I've had these experiences and even if it was that horrible thing, talk about okay, that gives me a, a unique understanding of this or that gives me some empathy for this kind of thing or this, you know what I mean? Because when it's just about the trauma, mm. then you're just that person. Okay, we'll call you when we do a show about like less yeah. molesting like, you know, <laughs> little kids, right? And then that you're in such a small little when box. You, so I think yeah. you do have to, yeah, I, I it's, it's the universal humanity thing. Like you got to talk about experiences that, I think the best way to put it to be Ben Watkins said to me once, um, it was funny, and, and here's I think the 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 goal for it is like, so I had met Bennett agreed to meet with me for coffee, so gracious with his time. And you know, so he's like, What's your background? And I told him my story, right? And i you know, I'm like blowing through stuff and not and he was like, Yeah, that's cool, but here's how I would tell it. And he retold my biography back to me. Wow. In a way that I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> that person sounds amazing. Like, that guy, I was like, that's so
1: interesting. He's oh, like, wait, yeah. it's me.
2: Yeah. And he was like, that's how you tell it. And listen, I took that to heart. And like every meeting I went into for the next two years, I was like, this is my story. You could just see people's eyes get big because when you live it, you don't know how it sounds to other people. Mm. But if you can if you can get in a space where you can hear that back and sort of step outside yourself and then you can sort of see see the value in it like that's super important and it doesn't mean that you had to be abandoned as a child it doesn't mean that you had to you know go through some horrible horrible thing like you know and and everybody's got stuff that's you know nobody's life is perfect right so everybody's got shit that informs the way they the way they do stuff
1: Um, i think it's i think it's hard to know who you are from the inside it's you know sometimes it does take that person on the outside to kind of like you know be like oh you're this and But again, you've got to be careful because if someone's like, you have a weird head, then you're like, oh, I'm the guy with the weird head, (laughs) you know, so like stay to your truths. But also you said something interesting a couple of minutes ago about like, you know, we three could go look at a Rothko painting and like get something out of it. I think that's kind of also the point of this film podcast is like, you know, the three of us, I watched it for the first time. You guys were rewatching it. We watch a film like Barbershop and it raises different questions. We are attracted to different characters. We get different things out of it. And I think, you know, it it all ties in together with art and stuff like that. Like, this is why we, it is important to invest in creative, whether it's film, music, poetry, painting, whatever, photography, because we are, you know, that is, humans are, we talk, we communicate, we tell stories. That's how we bond. That's our history. So I just think it's really interesting that it all flows together. Um, And storytelling is such a big part of creating a community or creating a dialogue or whatever it is, you know, I, understanding yourself where you think that blah, blah, blah. So... Very fascinating, very high-level philosophical conversation for uh, mm-hmm. before I've had some proper coffee in my body. <laughs> you know? Yeah, we're getting deep for a Saturday. So. I love yeah. it. I love it. Well, okay, so I know we're getting a bit long in the tooth, but you are so interesting. So let's just go a teensy bit longer if everyone can commit. Um So, you know, we talked about like your current show and then we touched on Billions and obviously your music career. Let's talk about getting that first staff job, because I think a lot of people who listen to the podcast, you know, they're aspiring, which we like to say instead of other terms to create people. You know, like if you're writing, you're a writer. I find that really hard. You know, David's acting. He's an actor. Has he booked Wakanda forever? No. but he's. Not yet. (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) What's the third one going to be? Wakandarer? More more Wakandans starring (laughs) David Rogers. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Um, But yeah, so let's talk about the first staff job because um, before we recorded, yes, so Amadou and I, I was like, oh yeah, we met through Saeed, but also I remember you from various like script anatomy Zooms, and I remember I would see your name and things, and then Uh, But you were still... I don't think you'd been staffed at that point. This must have been like 2019, 2020. And then you exploded. You got staffed. Everything was coming up Amadou at this point. Um, So talk about... You know, did, was there a specific script that you're like, this was the one where I really nailed my voice. Did you meet your agent at a men's bathroom? You're both peeing. He was like, you seem cool. I <laughs> <laughs> met in a gender neutral bathroom. Sorry, there you go. Yeah. yeah, there we go. Sorry. Um, yeah, let's talk about that. So how, what is the story of your first, the break in point?
2: Yeah, I think um, the prelude to that, which I think is important is once I decided to pivot to screenwriting in my mind, I was a screenwriter mm-hmm. at TV before anybody's got a gig, before I get any fellowship or anything. I remember there was um in New York, I think the right at the start of the pandemic, the reporter stopped me on the street. I was like walking my dog and they were asking, oh man, it was something about a, it was like, what do you think about the rules of mass? I answered the question. And then, so they asked like, what's your name? What do you do? And I was like, oh, I'm a dude." yellow. It's like, I'm a screenwriter, you know? And then when I think it got published, like I got a call, a call from, um, Somebody who was just like, couldn't believe that I said, like I was a screenwriter. I was like, they didn't ask me what I got paid to do. They asked me what I am. That's what I am right now. So I think first, like just that mindset, like I had committed to like, this is what I'm going to, this is what I'm going to do. Right. No guarantees. I I
1: truly love that, by the way. Now I'm like, should I go make business cards that just say Paris Hibotela president? And then like, it'll just happen.
2: (laughs) You got to put it out there. Like that's part of, I think, where we hold ourselves back is the fear of. Of course, it's not guaranteed. And look, looking back on it, if it I knew that I knew it was going to be tough. But if I had known how tough the odds were of breaking in as in staffing, like that's just nuts. Like if you think about that too long, you'll just talk yourself out of doing it. Yeah. Um, But I think it's important to just own it and say, "Hey, look, this you are you are what's inside of you. You're not necessarily what your paycheck you know says you are. Right? Like that's just what you're doing because you live in a capitalist society and you got to have money and you got to you know pay rent." Um, but getting back to, like, the first gig breaking in, um, so much of it, you know, there's always the route. There's an the assistant route, right? But when I broke in, like, I was 12. I was like, I'm not going to go get coffee for, like, 30-year-olds. So that was out. Then there's the fellowships thing. I would never, you know, never made it into any of those. Um, but networking was something living in New York I felt like I could do. And, again, this thing of owning it, like, I would tell people, like, hey, I'm writing a pilot. I'm doing this thing, you know? Um... And a couple of those people I told that turned into them telling somebody else later down the road. But the way I got my first gig was actually I joined a writer's group in New mm. York. So, again, that thing of like, I'm a writer, so I should be I should find a writer's mm-hmm. group. Right. Like giving yourself the permission to be what you are and not waiting for somebody to say validate it with a paycheck. Right. Um, so uh, one a good friend of mine, one of the writers in the writer's group was actually so at this point I had a manager. Um, but hadn't been staffed.
1: And how did you find your manager? Was it at a gender neutral bowling alley?
2: Ah, okay. So here, okay. This is, this is speaking to everything I was just saying. So I told a friend of mine who I'd known, we had kids were the same age. We'd known, we'd known each other since our kids were two. She's like a doc filmmaker. And so I told her I was doing this thing. I think I maybe passed her a script along. She had just had recently moved and two doors down the street was uh, a producer a film TV producer, she gave, she introduced us. I gave that producer my pilot. She read it and then agreed to meet for coffee. So we meet for coffee. She had lots of positive things to say about it. She's like, you know, keep me posted, whatever you're doing. And she's like, you know, if you ever go to LA, there's some people I want to introduce you to. So me, I just took it at face value. So instead of thinking, oh, she's just saying that to be nice. I went home, dude. And I was like, okay, two months, I'm going to LA. Just for like three days, whatever. So and I give it some time to be respectable. We'll wait like a couple of weeks. I'm like, hey, I'm actually going to be in LA for something. And you know, if you if you know those people are like, interested. Little did she know,
1: like that was my only reason for going. Yes, mm-hmm. I did the um, same thing when I was moving out here. I was like, yeah. And then you just like book the ticket. And you're like, fuck it, I'll <laughs> sleep on a floor. I don't know. Yeah.
2: So one of the people that she introduced me out here uh, was a writer, upper level writer, who read my script. We went out for coffee, and nine months later. He passed my script to the guy who's now my manager. Wow. So And it's all that stuff. And you never know what's happening. Yeah. The technicals are out there. Um. So that led to me getting repped. And then so the friend of mine who was in the writer's group, he actually, he called me up one day and said, hey, man, there's a show that you'd be great for. And I was like, OK, great. Thanks, whatever. So he gave me the info. I passed it on to my manager. And then I asked him at someone I was like, wait a minute. How did you know about this? And he was like, oh, I interviewed for it.
1: Which is incredibly gracious, right? Like who? Yeah, you know, that's what you need. We always talk about that. Like, be friends with people that like say your name in the room if yours doesn't apply, because we all rise together. It's not pieces of the pie in this industry. It's a water table. Like you get you get up, then you get to pull him in, and yeah, mm-hmm. that's really nice.
2: Right. Well, but here is the thing, though. So then I, you know,
1: I told my manager about it, so he got my script
2: in front of the guy, and I actually. I was able to make a couple of calls, you know, you could do IMDB, the, the showrunner and see if you know somebody who knows him and somebody was able to make a phone call. So I think that got my script off the bottom. Like my manager got in the pile. That phone call got my script on the top and he read it. We had a meeting and and my friend was still up for that gig, but I got oh. the gig instead. So it was a that. Yeah. You you know how the rest of that
1: is the friend. Still a,
2: is this stuff still a friend? To me, yeah, I, I think it's a, you know, I think it's a difficult thing, like, but here here's the other thing I, I will say, I feel like everybody trying to break into this industry says, oh, if only I knew like Steven Spielberg or Lee Daniels or whatever, like everybody wants to know. But if you want to be around successful people, that means that. Sometimes and maybe a lot of times you're gonna have to see people at your level get exactly the same shit you wanted, and you have to be okay with that mm-hmm. um, because that's just gonna that's just gonna happen. Yeah. So incredibly think, gra- grateful that he did that. Yeah, but.
1: You know, probably, I was, he he but, might low-key wish he didn't. But. Yeah, but, who, who's, <laughs> yeah, to, who's, but who's to say thing, that like, he
0: was going to get it even if Amadou that wasn't in it? Right? If it, it wasn't his to get, it, it wasn't his.
1: That's what I think. So, that's what I think. It's like yeah. if something's for you, it will never miss. I think David yeah. as an actor as well, like that's something you probably have to deal with all the time. It wasn't because, my
0: role.
2: Right? But I, there's also like yeah. there
1: might be five guys that look so similar to you in this industry, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. Yeah. I love that, and listen.
2: Though. It's it's hard because it's hard to be. You know, it's it's hard enough to make it in by itself. But what you need is people around you who are doing the same thing that you are. But everybody's journey is going to be different, right? So some yeah. people are going to be ahead of you. Some people are going to be behind you. So if some people are behind you, don't be an asshole to them. If mm-hmm. some people are ahead of you, don't well, be like the bitter person. You know? We are,
1: do you guys? I think you guys call it something different we call it snakes and ladders you know that board game i think you guys called it shoots, 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 and, ladders. shoots and ladders. okay yeah. so think about life like that right like you could be winning the game and then like god forbid something happens you have to leave la or new york or like you have to take time out maybe you break your leg whatever that's a that's a snake you could go all the way down to like the second box so that's why like when you say somebody's behind you i don't it's not in, in our business, it's not like a traditional race. It's like a race in zero gravity where you're just like, Ugh, and then like suddenly like you know someone gets a gust of wind and then they go up and then you know their foot catches on a hook and you flip. you know, you <laughs> held back. I just think, yeah, so it's important to be good to everybody around you because you just don't know um, at all. I will say, I feel like I've been on my path recently because all of my friends are succeeding and when you see everyone around you starting to grow, you're like, oh, I'm tapped in. For and sure. also,
2: you need to see that it's real. Like, you need to. See, mm-hmm. What I get excited about is if a peer of mine gets some amazing shit, even if it's shit I wanted. I'm like, okay, now I know it's possible, right? Because this whole yeah. thing, the industry is so opaque. Everything's in a black box. Everything's like fucking secret for no fucking reason. So you need you need examples to say like, oh, somebody is breaking in as a writer who's not 23 and just got out of film school. Like, I need I need to see that so that I know that it's you know that it's possible for it's me. Attainable. But I think yeah. to your point you know, you got to be good to people around you. But it's also like, even if that, you know, just being a good person doesn't appeal to you, you can think of it like this. (laughs) Like, this is such a small town. And everybody thinks about money, but the currency that's traded is information. And people are always talking. And when they're talking about you, do you want that conversation to be this person's an asshole or this person's a great this person's a great guy, a great woman, a great person who's always positive, always shows the energy. Or do you want it to be like, yeah, this person's just bitter and cynical because they are going to talk and you don't mm-hmm. have to be Shonda Rhimes for people to talk about you. You could just be on your second show or your first show or you could just you have could be
1: a grumpy PA that always has a right. sad face on. Um, it's true and
2: that no no amount of talent. If you're coming certainly as a person of color or any underrepresented group, no amount of talent is going to trump that. At the beginning so if you're thinking oh i'm just so amazing on the page i could be an asshole no you
1: can't no sir and also like we're too tired of assholes these days you know for every asshole genius you know einstein level writer who just crafts the most beautiful scripts like would i rather be in a room with that person or would i rather be in a room with a person that like makes me feel like sunshine and makes me laugh first thing in the morning or like remembers my coffee order or you know there's there's talent and then there's like This industry is collaborative. So, yeah. Well, I mean, here's the thing
2: is like once you get to a point, obviously you have to have the goods, right? Like for writers, you have to have the pilot, you have to have the scripts. That's just to get you past the first gatekeeper. Once you're past that gatekeeper, nobody gives a shit about your your script or your pilot. They want to know, like, are you a psycho or not? (laughs) Can I spend eight hours with you? Because you've already proven to somebody if, if somebody you refers you it. to me, you've already proven to that person that you can write. So I don't even need mm-hmm. to read that stuff. Now I just need to know, do I want to spend eight hours a day with you? And that's like, that's so up there. That's more than like 50% of the job. Mm. Um, For sure. People, people, you know, people work with people they want to work with.
1: Yeah. Great advice. Oh, so yeah. fascinating. Mm-hmm. Like, just so wonderful to have you on the podcast and to have this perspective because, you know, you are crushing it in your career. And it's a yeah. good conversation
0: to start the year, right? Yeah. To uh, hopefully this invigorates some people. If you, you know, kick that self doubt out of your head, keep grinding
1: positive attitude. Except about your head because it definitely is a weird shape. Your mom was right. (laughs) That's a callback. That's a callback. She was right the whole time. You have the weirdest head I've ever seen. Um, But for real, it's true. It's true. It's like empowering. But also I think one thing that I'm picking up from your life story and the stuff we've been talking about, like there is a discipline to it. So like... I love manifesting. I think Shonda Rhimes had this great speech where she was like, Look, you can read all the books in the world. You can daydream about it, but like arson chair, if you want to be a writer, arson chair writing. If you want to be an actor, get yourself to those auditions, be studying the scenes. Like whatever it is, you don't have to be Amadou level nine hours a day because some of us, you know, have jobs. But <laughs> if you can, yes, if this is your dream, do it. So I feel very inspired. Thank you so much for, for the pep talk.
2: Yeah. Now, here's the thing. If it was easy, imagine the additional competition you'd have for what you're trying to do. Mm, Like, that's that's why it's hard. It's supposed to be.
1: But some of it is hard also to get over that mental hurdle. And it's kind of to bring it back to the film of the barbershop. You know, some of it as well is like those limiting beliefs. And when they have that conversation about like what it means to be a barber, you're a therapist, you're a, a listener, you're this, you're a counselor, you're a stylist, you're this, like take pride in it as well. And, you know... Yeah. And also break that mental barrier. Like, you can't, if you want to do it, just fucking do it. Yep. A- and rant. Okay. We're very long in the two. Thank you guys for sending so much time. Um, we do have to give a quick shout out to someone in the cast or crew. David, why don't you kick us off so that uh, Abadu can see hey. how it goes?
0: I went with Felicia Fazzano. Great. Name First of all, she was a casting director on this Ooh. movie. Yeah. Um, so she's got a couple things coming up uh, open book, survival of the thickest. Um, but she's got 97 previous.
1: Damn. Yeah. She did
0: Illegal Their Own, the Amazon TV Great series. Show. Yeah. I haven't jumped into that yet, that though. That one has
1: something to say. Like speaking of people speaking their truth, female baseball in the, yeah, around the war times, lots of lesbians. <laughs> (laughs) some stories we love it she uh yeah casting director
0: for white famous which i actually saw them shooting an episode of that i think it's not a show anymore but um that was an interesting one house of lies which was a great show uh constantine yeah so she's been doing her thing obviously spoke about it a little bit to start with this has an amazing cast great ensemble all these people work together so well and um work well off of each other and I thought this uh, she did a great job in the casting so Felicia we see you and we
2: appreciate you
1: we see you and we appreciate you Amadou who you got to shout out
2: I gotta go with my man Terrence Blanchard the composer of the music for this film mm. ridiculous prodigy talented jazz trumpet player who you know came up in New York in the 80s 90s uh, moved into scoring films he's done a bunch of Spike Lee film scores. he scored Malcolm X Mm. Um, and two years ago, he became the first black composer in the entire history of the New York Metropolitan Opera to be commissioned to write an opera. Hell uh, f- yeah. Damn. Fantastic, super talented musician. Um, so that's got it. I got a shout out to him. Like just ridiculous talent and wow. having so much deserved success.
1: All that's right. Huge. We see you and we appreciate you. See
0: when We appreciate you.
1: Okay. I went with Trisha Schneider, partly because I, every time I get to say Schneider, <laughs> Schneider the Schneider cut. cut, I love it. Um, <laughs> but Trisha was the set decorator on this film. Um, and I thought the set decoration was great. You know, like in the barbershop, there were all these little things, you know, they made it seem so lived in, so beat up. I loved, I always love like scanning like someone's room for like the knickknacks and the tchotchkes. Like it just adds so much dimension, even like, uh, yeah, in the barber shop, like what they had lined up. I know this is more props, but like, you know, the one like guy had the old pearl handled razors, like it just all tied together so well. And it just really informs a character. And I don't think set decks get their day and it's all part of the community. So Trisha for the last nine years, it looks like, has been the set decorator on Chicago PD. She has done 144 episodes. She's wow. done many other things as well but that seems to be like her home from 2014 to currently so i think that's very impressive i'm sure she's from chicago or lives in chicago i think i don't know if they shoot chicago pd they probably don't shoot it there they probably shoot it here on a soundstage but in theory you know barbershop was a chicago movie this is a chicago show um and we appreciate her contribution to this film so trisha we see you and we appreciate you oh trisha all right, guys, it's that time. Well, first of all, Amadou, where can people find you if they want to connect with you, follow you, DM you pictures of their cats? I don't know. Mm-hmm. what what, are you, And we'll drop them in the show notes too. What is what is your Instagram, Twitter, blah, blah, blah?
2: That's so funny. Before Elon Musk bought it, I would have had a Twitter thing, but I I bailed on Twitter. So uh, <laughs> I'm in the digital, the social media wilderness right now. So okay. uh, you just got to bump into me in a coffee shop.
1: Okay. But they can watch billions. They'll see they your watch bil- work and then, yeah they'll just have to find you in a random coffee shop somewhere. Or a
2: gender-neutral bathroom.
1: Or a gender-neutral bathroom or a barbershop yeah. getting the guy to just keep one patch on one side of your head because of... <laughs> funny yeah, to yeah. even it out. Yeah, Gumby Silly. on the
0: side Ellie Munster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was
1: great.
2: The Munster cut. When yeah. you come home with the Munster yeah. cut. Yo. Yo. That's for real. That's for real.
1: Uh, David's going to get that haircut next. He's going to yes, somehow uh, figure it out how to grow the hair and then cut it into that. They're working um, but on But we it. have to decide whether this film has aged like Milk or not, David? What are you saying?
0: I'm going to say this movie did not age like milk. I think it held up. Um, I was, like I said, I was geeking out this morning. It made me feel good to start the day. There's so many good characters in this movie, and the collaboration and the community behind it. Uh, we've gotten some really good discussions, and if that's an indicator of how good this movie is and how it stands up, um, that's you know speaks for itself so love this movie Um, you know I'll watch it anytime it's on if it's on TV people can find it Uh, Paramount Plus I think Google uh, a couple different places but if you haven't seen this I think you should check it out and I think this movie held up
1: nice what do you think Amadou what you saying
2: yeah for sure it held up uh, keep it in the fridge it did not age like milk Um, I think one of the great things about it is having two kids I really appreciate movies that I could watch with my children. And, you know, if you have children that are like eight, nine up, you can watch this with them. It's funny. It has a message. It has a POV. Um, Yeah. And very little of the pre me too movement stuff going on. You know, so I, I think it, I think it holds up really well. And I think it's a testament to the fact that they made a movie, a sweet movie centered around black men. Like,
1: Agreed. Friendship, all of that. Yeah, it's a trifecta. I would say this movie held up. I mean, with the caveat that there might have been like a few little barbershop hairs in the milk that you might want to pick out, like the (laughs) R word, Yeah, you know. Well done. Um, Yeah, you're just like, ooh, what is that? This milk tastes great, but what is that? I'll just take that out real quick. And, you know, yeah, I mean, I personally, as a woman too, I would have loved to see a bit more conversation between women that weren't revolving around relationships, especially Eve, like her kind of major plot line is that she's getting cheated on and she needs to stand up for herself. I'm sure she's got other things going on. She's a barber, she's doing cool things. Um, So that would be my only criticism, but I do think it's worth a watch. And I'd love to see more movies, you know, spearheaded by creators of color that don't like we were talking about, like don't just center on like one part of history. Like I just want to see like black astronauts and people like doing all these things and like s- the skateboarding community or whatever, like cannon fucking builders from the Irish famine wars. I don't know. There are probably people of color there. And let's see those stories. It doesn't have to be like fully, you know, leaning into the one traumatic or not the one multiple Things that happened, you know, were inflicted mm-hmm. upon black people. It's like to see this joy. And I think that's where we're going, which makes me feel good. So, Amadou, we'd love to have you back on the podcast in the future. We'll check in. Good yeah. luck. Anytime. Anytime. Yeah. Yeah, do it um,
2: next one in person.
1: Yeah. Can't wait to see you in real life. How long are you in L.A. for?
2: Uh, it's Through June, like six months.
1: Wow. Nice. And so did they set you up with like a, a, a furnished apartment or what's the situation?
2: I set myself up with a furniture department. Okay. <laughs> nice.
1: I know. I could see the little camp chair in the background. Yeah. 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 Acquiring furniture piece by piece because mm-hmm. you're not here forever. So, exactly. Um, exactly. Well, we can't wait to see you. We'll, we'll get a coffee, all of us. Maybe we'll get managers out of it or maybe we'll, you know, who knows? Anything could happen. Yeah. Um, but for now, thanks for coming. Uh, Go watch Billions. David, you should check your fridge. And make sure that milk ain't spoiled. Gross milk is gross. That's our show. Thank you so much and bye.